This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Smoke and Vladimir's. President Putin's dramatic shakeup of Russia's government might seem like a bold move for democracy, but a Moscow journalist says it's all about holding on to power. Too much information. They're supposed to help you get a date, but a new report finds that online dating apps like Grindr and Tinder are oversharing your data by giving out your intimate details. Game changer, the Women's National Basketball Association gets a new deal that will boost salaries and provide maternity leave, which for our guest means she doesn't have to choose between playing and starting a family. Dude, where's my card? After shelling out 60K, a collector eagerly awaited the arrival of an extremely rare Pokemon card, but it never arrived, so he's soon. You can't accuse him of dragging his ass because a European man is walking across North America with mules, which are different. Plus, there are three of them. Any questions? And the year of living despondently. If you've been feeling glum recently, you might want to check how old you are. A new study has pinpointed the age when we're most miserable. Spoiler alert, it's 47. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that guesses there are 47 shades of grey. What Vladimir Putin says he's doing and what he's actually doing are not often the same thing. And today, once again, the question is, what is Vladimir Putin doing? Today, the Russian president put forward a plan for sweeping changes to how his country is run. On paper, the proposals look like reform. They would curtail the powers of the next president and beef up the powers of the prime minister and the government. President Putin's announcement seemed to come out of nowhere. And so did what followed, the resignation of Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev and the entire Russian government. Anna Nemtsova is the Russia correspondent for the Daily Beast. We reached her at an airport on her way home to Moscow. Anna, why is President Putin proposing these changes to the Russian constitution? Well, Putin is in transition to (laughs) grabbing more power, and uh, he could not just swap uh, in 2024 with Prime Minister Medvedev, uh, swap chairs again. They've done it before, and they could not do it once again. For people who don't know how this works or doesn't work, because you can't hold more than two terms, right? And But uh, Mr. Putin has managed to get four terms. Just explain quickly how in the past he was able to hold on to the presidency. So in the past, he had two presidential terms. Then he transferred the power to his successor, Dmitry Medvedev, So Medvedev was his loyal substitute for four years. And then in 2012, President Putin came back to his chair in the Kremlin. He returned as the president. And some people said that it would be just for one term. But other pessimists would say that that would be forever because uh, so much had happened, so many mistakes had been made that it would be unclear to see how Putin could let the power go. Where would he go? Where would he resign? But um, today it's already clear to everybody. 
So the second term, this second term that President Putin is holding now, he would be, it would conclude in 2024. So what... The fourth term. Today, uh, President Putin is holding the fourth term. Yes. And so so how does these changes, how would he manage to hold on to power beyond 2024 with these changes? So clearly, President Putin is going to create a new position for himself, uh, which would probably combine the prime minister's role and the head of state's role and the commander of chief's role. All these roles will be um, Vladimir Putin's roles. It's just not clear now. This is a transition period. What exactly that his position is going to be called? We don't know yet. Uh, And therefore, uh, President Putin today announced that the new prime minister of Russia is going to be the former head of police, of text police, somebody, Mishustin, somebody whose name we've never heard much before. And uh, my sources tell me that Vladimir Putin needs this person, some sort of politically weak personality, who would uh, hold this position of prime minister of Russia during this transition period until we find out which position President Putin is going to hold. I mentioned that on the face of it, people are saying, well, this looks like a, a democratizing of or further democratizing of the system, that it's giving the legislative branch more power, it's diminishing the powers of the office of president, that on the face of it, this looked as though these were progressive reforms. But when you look at it with a critical eye, how do you see this game playing out then? I see it as um, a very similar situation to what uh, happened recently in Kazakhstan when President Nazarbayev stepped down, sort of uh, announcing that he gives a chance to younger people to rule the country. But in fact, Nazarbayev stayed in power and he continues to rule in Kazakhstan and it's obvious to everybody. So no matter what position President Putin is going to take in the future and how he's going to hold that position, he is remaining in power and there is no doubt that he is. Why is it so important to Vladimir Putin to hold office at that level? Well, we've seen so many blames lately on Russia. We heard in the past six years Western countries blaming Russia for crimes of war for assassinations in uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Today, we see that very important court decisions are um, about to be made at the the highest international courts. The decision on uh, Yukos, a major Russian oil company that before belonged to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, ex-Russian prisoner, now lives in exile in London. And another very important court case, the decision on on MH17 that took place in Ukraine, in Donbass, is about to be made. So all these important court decisions uh, we are expecting to come up in the coming few months. And it's not surprising that today President Putin said that Russia in the future is not going to obey any international laws. In fact, that part of the Constitution is going to be rewritten. And at first, the president said during his addressing today that uh, Russian public will take part in voting for all these uh, changes. Uh, but later we heard that it's not going to be a vote. It's going to be a discussion. So there will not be this referendum that was promised? No, there will be no referendum. What do you think public reaction will be to this? Because from what you're describing and what we can see, it's fairly transparent what's going on. Does that bother people in Russia? Are they concerned with how Mr. Putin is manipulating the system in his favor? 
Well, the Kremlin has been preparing the ground for these major changes for months. And we could see a police crackdown on the opposition in summer. On July 27, there was a major political protest and dozens and dozens, hundreds of young people got detained on that day. So Russian opposition is under unprecedented pressure. Russians have been living in this kind of environment of semi-democratic, semi-authoritarian country for many years. And somebody told me today uh, we've been in gray zone for a long time and it doesn't look like it's going to be black. It's probably going to remain gray, but we are not hoping for any democratic reforms. And it sounded very sad, especially to hear something like that from somebody who is 25 years old. Anna, we will follow these developments. I appreciate catching up with you today. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. Anna Nemtsova is the Russia correspondent for the Daily Beast. She is based in Moscow. Last month, McGill University decided to hold on to its investments in fossil fuels. And now one of its professors is vanishing in a puff of smoke. Gregory Michelson had been teaching environmental ethics and philosophy there for 18 years. Then in December, McGill's Board of Governors voted on a motion requiring them to divest the school's endowment from investments in fossil fuel companies. The governors voted against that motion. So Professor Michelson has decided it's time for him to divest himself of his job. We reached Gregory Michelson in Montreal. Professor Michelson, should I still call you professor? Well, you can until the end of the month. And then what happens to you? Well, then I'll no longer be an associate professor in the School of Environment and Department of Philosophy here. Are you tenured? Yes. Wow. So this is a big deal to give up this job. Sure. You could, you, you could say that for, for sure. All right. Let's talk about why you're doing it. This isn't the first time, as you know, that McGill's board has refused to divest from fossil fuels. So what made you decide that this time you were going to make such a dramatic gesture? So I actually think that the McGill case is kind of a microcosm of the larger Canadian problem, and that is, okay, we have a laudable commitment to reduce fossil fuel consumption. So at McGill, there's a commitment to become carbon neutral by 2040, and some progress has been made in reducing some categories of, uh, of, of fossil fuel consumption on campus. Other categories, they're not doing so great at. But the problem is, that they fundamentally contradict themselves by saying, okay, we're going to reduce our own consumption, but we're going to bank on the expansion of fossil fuel production because to invest in something is to bank on its expansion. So by continuing to invest our endowment money in the fossil fuel industry, we're just contradicting, I would say morally contradicting the you know, the other commitments that we're making to reduce our consumption. Okay, I just want to okay, give you the university's response to your position. Right. And I think you right. see this. This is a report that the board seems to have relied on in deciding they were not going to right. divest, as you'd ask them to. And it says a wholesale exclusion of entire sectors is a constraint that would likely reduce the opportunity to optimize the portfolio. Um, at the same time, it says divestment-centered campaigns are a less effective way to achieve reductions in carbon emissions. And I think the a rough translation of that is that uh, we'd lose money if we divested, and it's not going to make a bit of difference anyway. So what do you say to them? 
Well, I would say that they both contradict the, the, the science of, of what has occurred. So, so first of all, there are you know, peer-reviewed articles showing that divesting or not divesting from fossil fuel basically has a negligible impact on, um, <clears throat> on, on overall returns. So what you're getting is just a standard theoretical expectation that's actually contradicted by the actual empirical record. And that includes a study that was done of the McGill endowment, <clears throat> along with a number of other endowments that showed that if McGill had divested when students first asked them to back in 2012, by 2015, they would have been $40 million richer. So, so first of all, that's, it's a theoretical expectation, but it's, it's contradicted by the, by the empirical record. Um, so the idea that divestment doesn't do any good also contradicts uh, the science that's been done. So the, the, the studies that have been done show that divestment campaigns in the past, in fact, did make a difference. So divestments from South Africa generated political pressure that then got Canada and the U.S. to pass restrictive legislation that reduced the harms caused by the offending companies. And in that case, uh, you know, there were companies doing business with South Africa, but ultimately reduced the, the harms caused by the apartheid regime and contributed to, to the end of it. So, so in case after case, divestment works. Right. But if, they, if the advice that McGill University is getting is that this, they would lose money, whether you dispute that or not, that's the advice they're getting. Do they not, does the university not have an ethical responsibility to optimize its endowment? I mean, McGill, like all universities in Canada, they're struggling financially. Do they not have, an, have a moral obligation to be trying to get as much money as they can for the endowment for the sake of the university? Well, as in any question, you have to weigh the benefits and the costs. We now have an entire continent on fire because of global warming in Australia. So if we could get, even if we could get maybe a slightly better return from fossil fuel investments, is it, is it actually worth the catastrophic cost to the human species and every other species on the planet? I would say definitely not. And McGill University would perhaps answer that they can't do the small amount of divestment they would have is not going to make a, a much of a difference for the continent of Australia. And again, that's contradicting the, uh, you know, the, the evidence of what past divestment campaigns have done. So McGill is the alma mater of the Canadian prime minister. If the alma mater of the Canadian prime minister said, we are no longer going to bank on the expansion of <clears throat> fossil fuel production, that would send a, a strong political message, especially when combined with the increasing number of other universities that are already taking that step. So University of Quebec at Montreal, Concordia University, and you probably uh, saw the uh, CBC report about University of British Columbia, which has an endowment about the same size as McGill's. Friday, they, they said, okay, we are going to divest our entire $1.7 billion endowment. How, what has been the reaction on the part of the university to your denouncing your resignation? All I can speak to is the reaction of uh, my colleagues in both the school environment and the Department of Philosophy, as well as students that I've talked to, and um, I guess to my great uh, relief and, and something that I very appreciate, they've been very supportive. And, but, and no, no formal response from the university, no concern that they're losing you? I understand you're quite a popular nope. professor. Uh, that may be the case, but uh, yeah, no, certainly no, no response other than to accept my resignation. Meanwhile, you're out of a job. Exactly. Where are you going to go?
Well, uh, I'm rooted in uh, in Montreal. My my partner has a full time job here. My kids are in school here, etc. So, for this foreseeable future, uh, we'll we'll certainly be here. Well, I wish you success in in that endeavor, uh, Professor Michelson, Mr. Michelson. Thank you. Thank you. Gregory Michelson will be a professor at McGill for another couple of weeks. We reached him in Montreal. Professional women's basketball players in the U.S. just reached a landmark labor deal. The Women's National Basketball Association and the Players Union agreed on an eight-year deal that would double salaries for some players and offer paid maternity leave. And that's not to mention the travel perks. The new deal offers players more legroom and comfier seats on flights and individual hotel rooms. Players in the WNBA will now, on average, make a salary of $130,000, which, of course, is still nowhere near the multi-million dollar deals signed by their male counterparts. But Lexi Brown says it's a giant leap in the right direction. She's a rookie player with the WNBA's Minnesota Lynx and is currently playing overseas in Israel for a team there. We reached her in Herzliya, Israel. Lexi, what does this new deal at the WNBA, what does it mean for you? For me, it's um, it's just a victory, I think, not just for our league. Um, I think it's for a victory for all women's sports all over the world. It's been nice to see, you know, that our voices have been heard. Um, some of our, I mean, I wouldn't want to call them demands, but like, I think I would rather call them needs. I mean, some of our needs are being met, you know, increase the salary, the benefits, the maternity leave. Things like that. I mean, I think it's just amazing and um, credit to, you know, everybody who, you know, works super hard to make this happen. And they're not just token changes, are they? I mean, there's some substantial increases in what you're going to get. Give us a sense of how your life as a player is going to improve because of this deal. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me personally is, you know, having the option of not having to go play overseas anymore. Playing overseas, you know, don't get me wrong, is it's an amazing experience. You get to see the world. Um, again, getting paid to play a sport that you love, um, learn new cultures, meet so many amazing people. But, you know, it's still not home um, and it's still a really tough life. And it's a, it's, a, it's a tough grind, you know, be away for seven to eight months out of the year and then hop right back into another season. So um, I think to have that, you know, option to be able to stay home and, you know, not be concerned about making money, you know, I think that's going to be huge for us. And you'll be able, you will make enough playing basketball to make a living of. You'll be able to stay home and, and have that as your job. Yeah. And, you know, that'd be amazing. And they also are offering working opportunities for players, um, you know, that do decide to stay home. You know, obviously it's not going to be as much as you could potentially make overseas. But, you know, the, the option is there and it wasn't before. Can you give us a sense of how much more money players will make? I understand the the minimum salary for a, a female basketball player with the WNBA was about 45000 U.S. That was the minimum mm-hmm. up to about 115000 for veterans. What will change? How will that, how will that change? The rookie salaries are going to go up, uh, you know, not super substantially. I think the biggest jumps are going to be for the, you know, mid-level and max contract players, probably, you know, almost double, even triple, you know, what they're making right now. After taxes, they're still going to be taking home six figures, which is amazing. At the end of the day, you're going to have to work 
for those contracts, just like you work for any type of promotion in any job. But, you know, now that we, you know, have a number like that to be working for, this league is going to get even more competitive than it was before. And I think it's going to be really fun for, you know, fans to be able to watch that. We should put some context into this, comparing this to male basketball players. Kawhi Leonard's salary last year was $32 million. Does that still bother you? I mean... (laughs) It doesn't bother me. I mean, it's apples and oranges, in my opinion. I think the the NBA is so much older than we are. And I think people forget that. I mean, I ask my dad about it all the time. And he's like, you guys are light years ahead of what the NBA was at in their 22nd year um, of being an organization. Um, I think we can't compare our salaries to them. And I think that we've stopped. You know, there were some players, you know, who got themselves into a little bit of trouble by doing that. I mean, and hopefully, I don't know if $50 million contracts are going to be on the table, but if we can get, you know, anywhere near, you know, seven-figure salaries for any players, you know, that would be a huge win in my eyes. Just for people who don't know, your your dad coached in the league, didn't he? The WNBA, yes. So Mm -hmm. he's seen this growth. He's been super excited um, to see how much the league has grown. One of the changes, though, there's, I mean, there are other things in this deal as far as more comfort and travel, being able to get, get, get a seat with, with a bit more leg room. But really, a huge development is that there is full salary maternity leave. What does that mean yeah. for, for women That's players? Amazing. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Um, I think you didn't see very many WNBA players while they're playing having children. You know, me personally, Um, I would have conversations with my own mom about, you know, when I wanted to start a family. And I've always just been like, I can't start a family until I get enough money. I think that I can, you know, survive on. And then I want to have my place in the league, you know, solidified. I mean, you got to think about things like that as a woman, because, you know, that's probably a year, you know, you're probably going to take off, you know, our bodies, our business. So when you decide to have a baby, you're making ultimately a business decision for yourself. Um, so for them to implement that, I think it's amazing um, for us young women who, you know, who want to have families um, that we don't even have. We don't have to pick basketball or having a family now. And I think that's really great. Um, and I think a lot of us are super excited about that. Why do you think the WNBA owners agreed to this generous deal? Um, I think that they've just seen the growth in the last few years. You know, there's been so much conversation about our league, about players in our league that I had never seen growing up. Um, Even in college, I didn't see this much conversation about the WNBA. And I think that they've seen it. They've bought into it, you know, that this league is growing. We're gaining interest from, you know, all ages. You know, they put us in the, the 2K video game, which was huge. I still have like grown men and like young boys messaging me on Instagram, sending me pictures of them playing with the Minnesota Lynx on their Playstations. Like, and I still think that's so cool. You couldn't tell me five years ago that you could get any men to play with the WNBA team on a video game that, you know, they play all the time. So this is just the first step to a lot of amazing things happening for us. Do you think it will change the way the league plays, the, the players actually play the games? Do you think it will have an effect on that? For the big money that's on the table, I think that the games are going to be a lot more fun to watch and a lot more competitive. You're able to get your players to, you know, have a real off season, you know, work on things, be able to develop their skills, you know, in their own setting that they're comfortable with. I think that's going to impact the game in in a positive way for sure. All right, Lexi, we'll leave it there. I know you got to get some sleep because you're playing over there in Israel. But uh, thanks so much. Thank you. 
Lexi Brown is a WNBA player for the Minnesota Lynx. We reached her in Herzliya, Israel, where she's currently playing for an overseas team. If you just type the number 47 into Google, the first result is from Wikipedia. 47 is the natural number following 46 and preceding 48. Now, that is conceivably the most boring entry on a site that includes definitions of towel, saltine cracker, and Ryan Seacrest. But, I mean, what did we expect? I mean, Wikipedia goes on to explain that 47 is a prime number, but don't tell that to an actual 47-year-old. They know there's nothing prime about it. That's according to former Bank of England economist David Blanchflower, who looked at data from 132 countries in the developed world and found that 47.2 is the age at which we tend to be most miserable. Professor Blanchflower has just published a paper entitled, Is Happiness U-Shaped Everywhere? That title refers to a graph which depicts people's mood from late adolescence to age 70. It starts high around age 20, and then it descends dolefully, hitting its nadir at... 47.2, before ticking back up through the 50s and 60s. Now, if you're 47.2 years old, why does the low point of the you mark the low point of you? It could be genetic. Primates like chimpanzees and orangutans apparently experience a similar midlife bottoming out. It could be all the responsibility, which keeps piling up but eases as we get older. Whatever it is, if you're 47, it's whatever. Because while these kinds of studies try to get to the bottom of things, you're already there. If you want to find love, you need to have an open heart. And if you're so inclined, an open app. Although it turns out some of those apps are entirely too open. According to the Norwegian Consumer Council, every time you use your phone, a large number of shadowy entities gain access to a treasure trove of your data. In a new report released this week, the council found that 10 popular apps, including the dating services Grindr, OkCupid, and Tinder, shared user data with dozens of third parties, and that that personal information they shared was often deeply personal. Finn Mierstad is the digital policy director for the Norwegian Consumer Council. He oversaw the report. We reached him in Oslo. Mr. Mierstad, just how worried should people be by the results of your study? I think uh, we should be really worried because we've uncovered really pervasive tracking on our mobile phones. Uh, At the same time, we also uncovered that it's really hard for us to do anything about it as an individual. What kind of information are we talking about? really sensitive information like our sexual orientation uh, or our religious belief or it's information that can reveal that kind of information so that could be our location data which can reveal where we live where we work where we spend our free time so so much information is being shared directly and indirectly from our phones we will narrow this down to dating apps that people might have on their phones. And so what kinds of information and I guess privacy breaches have you found from people having dating apps on their phones? 
Yeah, so it's the information that you actively give to the app. Uh, for example, one dating app where you have to answer a questionnaire, such as what is your favorite cuddling position or if you've ever used drugs and if so, what kind of drugs. So information that you'd probably like to keep private. Um, and then we've seen information that is collected in the background, and that could be your contact list, for example, or your location, so where you are at any given time. And these are dating services people are familiar with, like Grindr, OkCupid, Tinder. Isn't that, by definition, what they're supposed to be doing? I mean, if you're meeting people, you need to exchange an idea of who you are in order to attract someone who has similar interests or, or preferences or tastes, right? So isn't that exactly how these things are supposed to function? Oh, yeah. And I don't think anyone has a problem. Uh, but what we've uncovered is not only do you share it with the app that you're using, but the app is in turn sharing it with 10, maybe hundreds of other companies that you've never heard of and that you've never had a chance of finding out actually has your data. There's a whole ecosystem of companies whose only living is to collect data from all the different apps we're using. So it's not only your dating app that's reporting on you, but also other apps. And then there are companies in the background that are creating basically digital profiles about who you are, what your preferences are, what your vices are. And our worry, of course, is that people can become victims of manipulation and discrimination, for example, because uh, these companies know so much about us and it's really hard for us to know anything about them. We're seeing this in all kinds of ways, aren't we? People are having their voting preferences or their purchasing choices influenced because these companies collectively know so much about us, right? So this is an extension of that, I guess. Oh yeah, oh no, for sure. And and what we do know is that it's really easy from, from the kind of data that we just talked about to f- figure out someone's mental state. For example, if you track my location over time and I've, let's say I'm, I'm moving a lot and suddenly I start moving less, that's a pretty decent indicator that I'm depressed, for example, especially combined with other indicators. And so what we see is that it's really easy to, to understand people's psychological profiles based on this data, which of course in turn makes us really vulnerable to all kinds of manipulation. And how far does it does it move out? How many ripples does it make? Because first of all, the companies themselves, the apps are making this information available. And then those marketing companies, do they then move on to sell that data even further? Yes. <laughs> Potentially thousands of companies each time you use an app. Uh, to just give you one example, so we investigated one dating app called Grindr. And they have a partner called Mopub, which is owned by Twitter. And when we checked the privacy policy of, of Grindr, they referred us to the privacy policy of Mopub. And it says you need to read the privacy policy of all our partners. And Mopub in turn had 170 different partners that they potentially share data with. And just one of those partners had around 4,000 different partners that they could share data with. So <laughs> clearly the, the potential for sharing is more or less limitless. When you speak of dating apps like Grindr that caters to a gay clientele, what kind of danger might that actually present for people? Uh, If they're tracking their location, people go to places, to countries even, where it's dangerous for for them to be having same-sex relationships. So what vulnerabilities are there? I think that is probably the biggest vulnerability. So we found in our research that the fact that you had the app was transmitted to many third parties. So that's a pretty good indication that you're gay or bi, for example. And obviously, if that's sent together with your location, it's really easy to track down where you are. Uh, So obviously, this can put people's life at risk. 
We know so far that uh, Twitter has suspended Grinder from ad platforms while it investigates other groups like the, the Match Group that owns OkCupid and Tinder says it's working with outside companies to assist with providing services and, and they don't share uh, specific user data, only that's which is deemed necessary for those services. So are you saying that they are responding to these concerns? Um, I, I'm glad they are responding, but it's, it's definitely far from enough because uh, Twitter claims to have partners with 50,000 different apps. So so I think they need to look at their whole uh, operation and how they share data with third parties. Yeah, and this is just another another example of how people are under surveillance from the private sector in ways that we would never allow the government to have such surveillance on our lives. But it seems that people don't really care, that it's a price they're willing to pay in order to have these conveniences. Is that part of the issue? I hear that a lot, but research shows that people are really concerned about their privacy. But when they're left with take it or leave it choices, to being a part of Facebook or being a part of a dating service is what is their life right now. Considering potential future consequences is really, really difficult. And therefore, uh, it's what we call a privacy paradox. People feel that they have no choice. So they they sort of close their eyes and they, they click yes. Um, so what we're trying to do is to to ensure that services have much more layered controls, that sharing is off by default, and so that people can be empowered again to make real choices. Because today it's just take it or leave it. And for most people, that's not really an option. Mr. Mirstad, good work. And I appreciate what you've done. And thanks for speaking with us. Oh, th- thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> you bet. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Finn Mierstad is the Digital Policy Director for the Norwegian Consumer Council. We reached him in Oslo. And you can find more on that story on the As It Happens website, cbc.ca slash AIH. If Iran doesn't step up soon with cash, Canada might. At a press conference today, Transport Minister Mark Garneau and Parliamentary Secretary Omar Al-Gabra left open the possibility that Canada may offer interim compensation to the families of those who died on Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752. They also said Canada is still seeking official status in an investigation that Iran is leading into how that plane was shot down. That status would allow Canadian officials to analyze the flight recorder's data. One reporter asked Transport Minister Garneau if, in the meantime, they trusted Iran to lead a fair investigation. So investigations are very complex undertakings. It is very, very important to methodically and systematically gather all of the information before you have a full and reliable picture of the situation. There are things coming out all over the place these days, and some of them are clearly less credible than others, but the point is it's important not to jump to conclusions until you really have put all of the information that is available together to know what happened. And uh, we will not accept a situation where we feel that we're not being given the uh, information that we're looking for. Canada, make no mistake about it, is going to be going to the very bottom of this to get all of the answers that are needed to know exactly what happened. I'm wondering how hard Canada will push Iran to remunerate these families, if there's any sort of time frame and what you'd be asking for. 
One of the requirements from Canada's point of view, uh, along with justice, is compensation. Compensation to be provided by those that uh, that uh, uh, stand guilty of being uh, uh, playing a role in in this tragic accident. But let's do the homework first, and uh, and then uh, we'll get to that. These concerns that we're hearing from some dual national families that uh, Iran won't help uh, repatriate if they hold dual Canadian Iranian citizenship, is, is that the case? From our point of view, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, as you've heard us say perhaps a thousand times, and we believe very strongly in that. So in our view, uh, the 57 Canadians that lost their life tragically are Canadian citizens, and they are entitled to all the rights that Canadian citizens have, and we will do our utmost to make sure that those rights are accorded to them. That was Transport Minister Mark Garneau answering questions from Global News reporter Abigail Beeman. If you were impatient about impeachment, today was important because it was the end of the impasse. For weeks, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi withheld the articles of impeachment from the Senate, which made Republicans in particular pretty antsy. But this morning, Ms. Pelosi announced the lawmakers who had been appointed the managers, or prosecutors, of the upcoming impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. And after she did, the House voted to transmit those articles to the Senate. The trial is not expected to really get underway until next Tuesday, but today a ceremony was held to mark this next step. Before the vote, Nancy Pelosi spoke in the House. Here's some of what she had to say, including what seemed to be some mobster slang. The President of the United States, in using appropriated funds enacted in a bipartisan way by this Congress, funds that were meant to help the Ukraine fight the Russians, President considered that his private ATM machine, I guess, and said he could say to the president, he could make, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Do you paint houses too? What is this? Do me a favor. So we have a situation that is very sad. Don't talk to me about my timing. For a long time, I resisted the calls from across the country for impeachment of the president for obvious violations of the Constitution that he had committed. But recognizing the divisiveness of impeachment, I held back. Frankly, I said, this president isn't worth it. But when he acted the way he did in relationship to withholding funds from Ukraine in return for a benefit to him that was personal and political, He crossed a threshold. He gave us no choice. That was U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking in Washington today. Emile Braget has two passions in life, walking and mules. So it just made sense, to him at least, to leave his life in France, purchase three mules, and hit the road. We reached Emile Braget on a farm about 200 kilometers west of Saskatoon. Emile, we have to know, what makes a man wake up one day in France and decide, 
I'm going to walk across North America with three mules. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, a teenager dream. I wanted to know these countries better. I enjoy so much the landscape, the wildlife, to be outside also when it is not too cold. And uh, I like to meet people. But, I mean, you say that it was a teenage dream. How old are you now? Uh, 68. (laughs) So it took you a while (laughs) to get to your dream then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you came, so you came to to, to, the, to the United States first, and then you, you, you got your mules. Where did you get the mules from? Uh, I got the mules in Northwestern Mules. It is a company who uh, buys and sells and raises mules in Idaho. So I went there and I bought three mules, and I started the ride the 1st of July. I cross Idaho, Montana, a little bit of North Dakota to see the buffaloes, and then I went northwest to Canada. And now you are in Saskatchewan, just at the Alberta border. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking at a picture of you, and uh, you are out on the road there, and you have a lot of uh, frost on your whiskers, and your mules have a lot of frost on their whiskers. So, um, are you, <laughs> have you? We are in the winter. In summer, <laughs> yeah. we have known that. <laughs> so, are you? Are you still out there every day, or have you? Are you finding some place to keep warm now? It is, uh, it is something amazing because uh, in uh, Canada, people do not want I stay out bo- for the night. So I have to be close to a ranch to buy hay and oats or barley to feed the mules because outside there is nothing or not enough. So when I am close to a ranch, I sleep in the barn, I sleep in the bunkhouse, sometimes in the house. And we share something with the people of the ranch. And uh, the Canadian hospitality is really something important. So uh, do the Canadians let you sleep in the house? Yes, sometimes. (laughs) Have you had any moments when you thought, I don't know why I did this, this was a stupid idea? No, it's not a stupid idea. (laughs) But did you ever, ever, any moments when when you regretted that you made this decision? No, no, no. Sometimes it is more difficult than uh, another, but uh, no, I try to keep going, and I try to enjoy every day. Every day there is something nice to enjoy. So take it easy, enjoy what is good, and do not fare too much. <laughs> so, but the question is, are the mules enjoying it? Uh, the mule, I take care of them. They do the job. And uh, if I want to quit, I will do. I am my own boss. If they want to quit, they will have to ask me. (laughs) So I take care of them. And the best way to take care of them is to do not rush them and to feed them well. So they go from one place, they eat well, to another place where they expect to eat better, (laughs) and they do. So, But we know that mules are supposed to be very stubborn. 
No, that is not true. The mules have always their own opinion about the job to do. So if you convince them, the job you ask them is good for them to go from, from one place to another place where we will eat well, they do eat. And with mules, the problem is the relationship. If they like you, they will do for you. If they do not like you, <laughs> they do not. And so, do do you they like the you, boss, Emil? Do they like you? I, mean, I, I, I presume I, they I do. I suppose. I am the boss, but I try to be the right boss. And these are, we should make it clear, these, these are mules. They're not donkeys, right? They are mules. The mule, a mule is a, the cross between a mare and a donkey. And they're not asses? No, they, ca- they are not asses. They cannot reproduce. Okay. So, <laughs> anyway, so you are going to stay where you are for now. When will you move on? Uh, Sunday, the weather is becoming a lot better. And now we are just helping to feed cows, and uh, we enjoy the relationship with the people where I am. Right. Do you think that you're, because you're the boss, but do you think that your mules are going to want to move on? It sounds like they're getting pretty comfortable where they are and not being on the road. No, no, they want to move. They are like uh, children in a schoolyard. They want to get out. Do you talk to them? Oh, yes. Yeah, I talk to them in French. They understand. They become, <laughs> they begin to understand French. <laughs> <laughs> so you have bilingual mules. Yes. <laughs> All right, Emil. I understand you have some cows to feed, so we're going to let you go. Okay. Yeah, and, okay. and give our best to Jojo, Jack, and Sully. Okay. They really do. <laughs> and good luck on your trip, Emil. Thank you very much. Okay. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye. We reached Emil Brage on a farm about 200 kilometers west of Saskatoon. He's six months into what he envisions as a two-year journey, walking around the U.S. and Canada with his three mules, Jack, Jojo, and Sally. just one little card, but it's worth a lot of coin. Not that you'd know from looking at it, unless you're a serious collector of Pokemon cards, which may sound like a rare breed of person, but apparently it's not nearly as rare as this particular card. A collector in Dubai paid $60,000 for it online and figured that was a steal, but then it was actually stolen or lost before it got to him. So now he's suing the shipping company that failed to deliver it to him. Mark Zaid is the lawyer representing that collector, and we reached him in Washington, D.C. Mr. Zaid, what is so special about this card that someone would pay $60,000 for it? This card is one of only a small number that was specifically made for a competition in 1999 and given out to the winners. So it is literally... Uh, one of the only cards of this kind that existed in the world. Wow. What does it look like? Uh, it looks, you know, like a trading card, a baseball card type size, Japanese, you know, lettering and Pokemon characters uh, on it. 
as I've told this story of this case to people, you know, the, the normal reaction is, oh, my God, my kids have Pokemon cards. Let me go look through them. <laughs> well, this is, again, a very special card that was manufactured for this competition. So unfortunately, maybe people have money in their Pokemon cards, but they, they doubtfully have a $60,000 Pokemon card. All right. So these cards have characters on them usually, and including like a kind of a Pikachu. And by saying that, I've exhausted my knowledge of Pokemon. But uh, this one's different, though. How would this be used in the game? So I don't think it had a use in the game, and I think your knowledge of Pokemon maybe even exceeds mine, because I probably couldn't have come up with even Pikachu. But this would have been a card that was presented to the third-place winner, as I understand it, in a particular competition. So as one expert in collecting Pokemon cards referenced it, that there are more Olympic gold medals out there than this type of Pokemon card. So think of it as an Olympic medal, but rarer. Wow. Okay, so let's get to the story of how you get involved with it, because your client is a collector in Dubai who paid this 60000 U.S. price for the card. And then what happened? They bought it from an eBay sale, and the seller was in Iowa. It was originally offered for $85,000, and they negotiated it down to sixty. And because it was an out-of-country sale, the proper way to do it is to get a shipping company involved, this company called Aramex, which is a Dubai company, and has a location in Queens, New York. And it was shipped there, and it never showed up in Dubai after that. It arrived from the U.S. Postal Service to Queens at the company, and from there, it was lost. Lost or stolen? Well, there's no evidence to indicate that it was stolen, so I'm certainly not going to make any accusations against the company. It was signed for by a representative of the company, and what they say is that, well, we were having problems with the Postal Service who would ship us a bulk number of items, and we would sign for everything without checking to see what among them is there. Well, unfortunately, that's not how shipping works, and it's not our problem. The shipping company signed for it. End of story. It disappeared in their possession. It was insured for $50,000 with the U.S. Postal Service, but the Postal Service did its job. It shipped the item from Iowa to New York City. So there was no means by which to collect any of that insurance money. You know, it's, again, a baseball card-sized item that would have been properly wrapped, and so it'd be in a small box. You obviously don't put any indication of significant value on the outside of the box for fear it could disappear <laughs> during shipping. That's right. You don't put, so this is worth a lot of money. Please handle it with care. <laughs> right. No rare Pokemon card on the box or anything of the sort. Okay. You can track the movement of everything you ship now. So how can this just fall off the face of the earth unless it was taken by aliens? Right. You would think I ordered a Domino's last night. I tracked the pizza, you know, from their door to my door. It was so easy. Actually, at one point, their system indicated it was out for shipment, meaning going to the collector, the owner in Dubai. But then it was determined, no, they never did it. They lost track of it in their possession. And the buyer is out over $60,000. What does your client want then? The card, of course, ultimately. And maybe, you know, you always have a hope that it could show up. Maybe it's 
under someone's shelf or fell under a desk. Who knows? But unfortunately, at this stage, the only thing one can do is seek financial compensation for loss of the sales purchase attorney's fees and possibly other type of punitive damages on the company to make sure this never happens again. I can't resist asking you because normally journalists like me are talking to you about this other fame you have that you're the lawyer who represents the whistleblower whose complaints sparked the impeachment of the U.S. president. So how much of a, of a game change is this for you to be tracking a Pokemon card? It's not much of a game change at all, actually. I have a, a vibrant national security practice that deals with the U.S. government and other governments but I also have a very significant law practice that deals with collectibles. I am a part-time comic book dealer and high-end collector of historic documents like of presidents uh, and Supreme Court justices and famous people from around the world. So I do a lot of work in the collectibles field, and many high-end collectors and dealers like major auction houses come to me to act as their lawyer in disputes, especially when it's involving other governments or very sensitive matters. So this is actually a very typical case for me. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again in some capacity. Uh, No doubt. There'll, There'll be more presidents that I'll have to deal with, no matter what their political party. Or collectibles. Or both. There could be presidents who collect items, I'm sure. <laughs> and if they want to hire me, I'm, I'm available. Mr. Zaid, thank you. Thank you. Mark Zaid is a lawyer in Washington, D.C. He's representing a collector of rare Pokemon trading cards who's suing a shipping company for failing to deliver a $60,000 purchase to him. Mr. Zaid also represents the whistleblower whose complaint triggered the impeachment of U.S. President Donald Trump, But you can find more on the Pokemon story at cbc.ca slash as it happens. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.